This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Lewis. Cold enough for you, boy? Don't worry, we'll get inside that ice shack yet and warm you up. Brr. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. It's cold outside, but it's got me thinking about beaches. It's got me thinking about the East Coast, and I miss Nova Scotia. I love Nova Scotia. I spent a lot of summers out there ah, in my cabin. We're going to have some schooling from Miss Lily about creatures that live under the ocean surface along Canada's East Coast. We're going to talk to some leading scientists out there and what they're doing to track shark movement using the Ocean Tracking Network. And we're gonna get on board a 40-foot lobster boat with Art Keaton and go out there and capture some sharks ourselves and tag them. Real life, that was me out there, not getting bit, thank goodness. And then we're gonna get into some sea kayaking tips. I've done a lot of kayaking on the ocean. A sea kayaks have a rudder. That's the main difference between a sea kayak and a regular kayak. Hey, let's get into that cabin and warm up. Come on, Lewis, forward. Getting schooled with Miss Lily. Lily, what do you got for us from under the sea? Okay, today I have an odd assortment of very weird aquatic and marine creatures. Nothing scary because that's your thing. When hermit crabs go looking for a new shell and find one that's too large, they'll line up beside the shell and wait. As other crabs come along and try on the empty shell and find that it's too large, they'll line up in a row in descending order of shell size. No way. This goes on until a crab comes along that fits the shell. Okay. Then, okay, the rest of the crabs swap shells down the line so that everyone gets a new, better-fitting home. That's cooperation. It's like goodwill. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, when lobsters or crayfish molt or shed their shell, they don't grab one. They have to grow a new one. So at some point, they get rid of their old shell because it's too tiny for them. It's pinching. Then they crawl out of it, and then they're almost like they're naked. They're soft, right? So they have to hide for two or four days until their new shell hardens up because nothing is more delicious than a soft shell crayfish or lobster. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yum, yum, fishies. They're on the menu at that point. Okay. uh, Did you know that the sturgeon... Uh That dates back to the Triassic period, 200 million years ago. These dinosaur fish have been mucking around on river bottoms for millennia. Millennia. Reaching lengths of up to three meters. That's huge. That's huge. I caught one two meters, and I thought that was huge. I can't imagine catching one of these massive ones. I I just can't imagine. Reeling that in, huh? Oh, my goodness. Well, attempts to rebuild sturgeon population across North America have been challenging because the reproductive habits are somewhat weird. Really? Yeah. Well, sturgeon reach reproductive maturity at a relatively late age for fish. Okay. Worse, the adult males are only interested in spawning once every two years. And female sturgeons seems even less interested. You know, I guess if you're hanging around for a couple hundred years, you're not in a big rush to do anything. I think at some point they're just tired of being there too. (laughs) The next time you're tempted to order calamari, think about the fact that squid and octopus are some of the weirdest, wildest animals on the planet. Really? Uh, Getting an accurate assessment of the true level of cephalopod intelligence is difficult because they refuse to cooperate with human experiments. 
They're stubborn. Huh. They are also supreme escape artists. Oh, man, I remember like, the story from Vancouver Aquarium. They, they were mm-hmm. losing fish in this fish tank. Every day, there was a few less fish. And then they watched the uh, video camera. And at night, the octopus would climb out of his tank, crawl across the floor, go into the fish tank, eat a couple fish, and then go back in his own tank before the morning. Have a little buffet, midnight <laughs> snack. Can you imagine? With half a million brain neurons about the same as dogs or a three-year-old kid, Stories about their tricksy ways are pretty legendary. Wow. Yeah, well, they can recognize individual humans and often spit water at those that they don't like. We share one remarkable thing with these animals. That's a camera eye with a lens that focuses on an image in our retina. So we can, like, focus on one thing, then zoom out, kind of. Can I get one of those? I'd love to get a big octopus eye. (laughs) Oh, my God. Poor, poor octopus. Well, they'd have to sign the little driver's license to donate the eyes, you know, uh, you know, like the organ donation. Oh, my God. Yeah. That would, that'd be so weird. Like, I, I drive with my octopus eye. <laughs> okay. There's one last story, and it's really weird. Yeah. The largest predatory shark ever discovered is the Megalodon. Oh, the it, Meg. It's a bit of a mystery. Yeah? Um, we know it lived between 15 and 3.6 million years ago. Right. And it reached at least 14 meters in length. <laughs> More than double the size of an adult great white. Wow. That's a big shark. That, that great whites are big, too. Great whites are big, too. Wow. But a megalodon, dude. That's just terrifying. Yeah. Well, because of its soft cartilaginous skeleton, only a few parts of the shark's body are mineralized and preserved, including its teeth, skull, and spine. Those are honestly the most important parts, I think. I mean, it'd be nice to get the whole skeleton, but, you know, they don't have one. Yeah. The size of this predator's 17-centimeter teeth makes them seem really creepy. I'm holding out my fingers. 17 centimeters. Yowza. That's like seven inches. Imagine that going into your (laughs) arm. (laughs) That's just one tooth. And they've got probably hundreds. Well, by examining the spine, researchers were able to determine that megalodons gave live birth to babies two meters long. Larger than an average adult human. That's me. A, That's a baby the size of me. Oh my gosh. It's a baby megalodon shark. Okay. Um, some sharks lay eggs while others actually have the babies to live young. In most sharks, however, the eggs hatch inside the mom where the young feed on the egg yolk and fluids that she secretes until they are born fully formed. Sounds nice. Yeah. Well, how the megalodon babies got so big prior to being born is likely due to cannibalism. Uh-oh. Eating their siblings in the womb. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, other sharks do that, too. They learn from a, such a young age. This grim survival strategy isn't unique. Great white mako and thresher sharks also have shark pups feeding on other shark pups prior to being born. Oh, let's not get one of those oh, for a pet. It's been going on for at least 70 million years, Dad. Yeah, I guess you had to be tough if you wanted to survive that long. Mm-hmm. Well... Even worse, the life expectancy of a megalodon is about 100 years. Only Greenland sharks live longer, up to 500 years old, likely due to their living in cold northern oceans. We're going to talk to some people about sharks, Lily. I've got some guests lined up. Well, Greenland sharks are common along the three coasts of Canada, even Nova Scotia. Do you still want to go to vacation there? I kind of do, yeah. You want to swim with the sharkies? <laughs> I'll kayak with the sharks. I don't think Theo will want to, but sure. Just don't tell him. Okay, it'll be a surprise. Thanks, Lily. Okay, no problem. Time for the bucket list. 
talking to Dr. Horace Gee from Dalhousie University about fish movement on the east coast of Canada. So let's talk sharks. Um, we have a few. The Greenland shark is a cold-blooded shark, so it doesn't have an ability to heat its inside body using the heat from its muscle contractions. Greenland shark gets really large, probably hundreds of years old, but I've been swimming with some that have been on the order of 17 feet long, so wow, <laughs> that's quite quite a, an amazing animal. Yeah, they yeah. They up north, and they go down deep to over 1,000 meters, and they're the a dominant component of our Arctic food webs. By contrast, great white sharks cover a lot of ground. We've seen them come out of the Gulf of Mexico, up along the coastline of North America, into Canadian waters, into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, to the Gaspé Peninsula, and then turn around and go back again. Wow. <laughs> That's all in a single, single year. And the reason they're coming is good feeding opportunities. Seals. Seals. Their favorite snacks. Their favorite snacks, <laughs> and the seal population is doing well. Or I guess I mean they're in the up to the in the millions now. I'm told. Uh, Certainly, the gray seals yeah. have been, uh, been doing very well, and the population patterns remain growing. But actually, one of the conundrums up until this year that we had was that for six years of monitoring, the one place in the ocean where we were not picking up electronically tagged great white sharks was off of Sable Island, which is where we had the highest concentration of gray seals in the world. Wow. Okay. We we're scratching our heads saying, what in hell is going on with this? This year, for the first time, we did detect, I think it was two white sharks off of Sable. Oh, boy. So they finally found it. Yeah, they Some found them it. Did. But we'll have to see if they come back in future years. Pity the seals on Sable Island. This is the balance, right? This is the natural balance of things. There was always great white sharks. This is not an unusual thing. This is not a climate-related thing. This is just nature being restored because for a long time, the seal populations were artificially repressed because of, um, you know, bounties put on their heads uh, because people like uh, commercial fishers just thought, you know, hey, we don't want seals because they're, they're eating the fish we want to catch and sell. So, yeah, they were paid to sort of take the seals out. And uh, that's all stopped now. And the seal population is rebounded. And now that there's this plentiful food source, the uh, apex predators are coming back. So the natural order of things is, is being restored. Is that about right? So there are two, two parts of that. Part of it is, yes, there's a natural food supply to feed the sharks. But the second is we're also stopping the mortalities that were happening, that were suppressing these animals yeah. from uh, coming forward. The, the large apex sharks don't produce a lot of pups. And as a consequence, it takes a long time when the population gets depressed to bring them back. So you might get, I don't know, six pups out of a great white female, and she'll, t she'll only breed once every three years. Yeah. By contrast, a single blue shark female may produce as many as 70 in a, in a year and, and do that every year. So the blue sharks have tended to stay more abundant than the, uh, the other species because of that. And, and for people who want to swim... You know, no one has ever been killed by a great white shark off the coast of Nova Scotia, as far as I can tell. But that doesn't mean, you know, it's, um, you just want to go out there and flop around in your seal-colored swim outfit uh, on a surfboard. Yep. Amen, brother. <laughs> so, so there are things that you can do. I mean, it's just common sense activities in, in areas where there are sharks. And you, you don't want to go swimming at dawn and dusk. You don't want to be alone. You don't want to be splashing a lot like you're injured. That would attract 
the animals in. And you don't want to be on the isolated surf break all by yourself at dawn and dusk in the peak feeding areas of the sharks. And they say a lot of times these these shark-human encounters along beaches, it's sharks, younger sharks, just sort of sampling, wondering, hey, is that something I can eat? And they taste with their mouth, right, like all fish do. And then they realize, no, that's not a seal or that's not a cod or a haddock or whatever, and they swim off. But then you look down, you got this big gash wound in your leg, and you think, oh, my God, I've been attacked by a shark. But it's not necessarily the case of an attack, right? I mean, these sharks aren't finding humans and going after them necessarily. It's, it's, they're not including humans in their menu of preferred items to eat. You just hit on a really important point, is that, as, I, as we mentioned, the, the shark populations are coming back. They're rebounding. But we have skewed the distribution into the juvenile slash subadult age group. And these are the animals that are just making that transition from feeding on fish to beginning to feed on seals, and they're figuring it out. Uh-huh. So, yeah, they are experimenting, and they may be, be nibbling, as you say, on all sorts of things that they think might be food, and they're learning what it is and what isn't the kind of thing that they want to find. So we're probably in a period right now where there are a lot of these juveniles that are coming up along the coastline, and it behooves us to be a little more attentive because of that. You mentioned at the beginning the blue shark population is still in decline, and, you know, we talked to Art Eaton and and his tagging program out of of Halifax there, and he's a a citizen scientist that's been working hard on this for years. And and he's had a lot of concerns about blue shark and, and long lining for swordfish and things like that. And the, the problems that of uh, these incidental bycatch issues around the uh, the swordfish fishery is that the main problem for blue shark or is it finning or what is it? Well, we we think right now in North America that the problem is really the the issue of the accidental bycatches. Yeah, uh, of these things that we think we've got a handle on the illegal trade for the shark finning, but. Blue shark, especially in the adult phase, is wise ranging. And one of the models for how the species works is that it's basically entering into this clockwise current gyre we have in the North Atlantic. So you have the Gulf Stream that comes up out of the south, and as it gets up towards Baffin Island and Greenland, it, it shifts over and flows over to Europe, and then it comes down along the coastline of Spain and towards Africa. And then as it hits the equator, it will then, all that water will then flip back across and then hit the Caribbean and then come north again in the Gulf Stream. So it's a big gyre doing this. And the blue sharks look like they get into that gyre as adults and they go around and around and around. Really? Okay. I I know Art said some of the fish he's tagged, they've been captured again down in Cuba. So that's probably it, right? They've done the, they were on their way back. Well, that's part, that's potentially part of it. But by contrast, we've had some other interesting patterns with the juveniles. And one of the things that's special, at least about the Halifax area, is that it seems to be a nursery area for especially young female blue sharks. So we've had tags, acoustic tags, on some of these animals. And what we found was they would come back to the Halifax region for three or four consecutive years, right into the same general area. And then they move, that would be for the summer when it's warm and the feeding conditions are good, then they move away to warmer temperatures. They seem to move out towards the Gulf Stream, where it gets warmer, and then they loop north a little bit, then they turn around and come back down again, and then come right back to the Halifax area until they grow up and get to a size where they're reproductively active. And potentially this is because that there are a lot 
of forced copulations of juvenile females if these big males can get them. Mm-hmm. And blue shark mating rituals are not pretty. quite aggressive, yeah. and there's a lot of biting involved. And an immature female could be killed easily by this brutal treatment that they would get during uh, that. So yeah. what they do is they find areas where the big males don't seem to want to go, and that seems to be the Halifax area off the Scotian Shelf. Okay, All They right. come back, and they, they, they refuge in there. So those animals we've been able to monitor, and we have seen a precipitous decline in the percentage of tagged animals coming back year on year. In the last five to seven years, it's been almost a straight-line decrease in terms of the numbers, so we're very concerned. Yeah, that's not good, but we don't know why. Well, we don't know why. I've been following shark research and what's going on with sharks along the East Coast of Canada for years, going way back to the early 1990s when the cod fishery collapsed and concern was starting to be raised about the health of our shark population. I had encountered sharks out cod fishing when I was working out there in the summertime along Cape Breton Island. It wasn't unusual for me to encounter blue sharks. They were quite commonly found in the fishing waters where you found cod for obvious reasons. I tracked down Art Geaton. He's a world-renowned shark expert along Canada's east coast. He's a citizen scientist. For over 20 years, he's been going out capturing, tagging, tracking, and releasing sharks. So here's my uh, experience with Art Geaton out of the Halifax Harbor aboard his 40-foot lobster boat. I'm just getting onto his boat here. Is there any holes on this boat? I'll just use my stick and I'm just gonna have a nope. look around the boat, get a feel for it, if that's okay. Lawrence, I've been uh, actually studying sharks um, since I was five years old. Wow. When I first seen the, my first shark. Nice. after I spent my 20 years in the Navy, I opened up my own shark charter. I want it to be different than everybody else. So every shark that we catch, we tag them, we measure them, we photograph them, and we release them. Has anyone recaught any of the sharks? Many times. I've had a return recaptured off the uh, mouth of the Amazon River. No. Had another one just recaptured down off of Cuba. When a shark gets recaptured, the information that comes back tells me how big the shark was and how long it's been at sea and where it was recaptured. So if the shark's been at sea for three years or four years and he's only grown four inches, then we know that they're, they're a very slow-growing animal. In fact, they are. And they don't live very long. That's the problem, is that um, we're, we're killing them faster than they can reproduce. They say between 100 and 150 million are actually um, slaughtered each and every year, uh, either for their fins or for bycatch. And we've lost 90% of our sharks globally in the last 20 years. Um, they're telling us that there's all kinds of large blues that are offshore that are being caught on the long lines. And 95% of them are dead. So they're attached to this 40-mile-long fishing line yeah. with a 10-foot leader. Yeah, and they, and they can't just keep swimming in circles. They, they breathe by ram. By moving, Water yeah. rope flowing through their mouth over their gills and by, out the side, yeah. If they stop moving forward, they stop breathing. They stop breathing. What the public fails to realize is that sharks have been on the planet for 450 million years, and um, 70% of the world's oxygen comes from our oceans, and sharks are our top predator in the ocean. So if you remove the top predator from the ocean, the food chain will, in a sense, reverse itself and it'll start working itself all the way back down till, the, till oh, it gets yeah. to the organism that produces the oxygen, which is phytoplankton. A 650 billion tons of phytoplankton is produced from the oceans around the world, and over the last uh, five years, that 650 billion tons has now dropped to um, 400 billion tons. So it, it means that we need to look after these things that we have in the ocean. So here I am bringing in a shark up, using a rod and reel. Now he's coming up to the surface. 
Okay, Lars, that's good. Okay. So I'm stepping back. Art and his first mate are going to slide the shark into the boat. Yep. Can I come? Yep. Hook is out. Okay. So we've got about a six foot shark here aboard the boat. They're huge. 61. 61 inches of the uh, fort. Take off. Okay. So they're doing the measuring and tagging. membrane, the same as our eyelid, right? That's how I check to see if he builds up lactic acid in his body. Sharks have a sixth sense, the ability to be able to detect very minute electrical current. All the little pinholes are filled with a jelly called the Apiliborn Zini. Okay. And they're very, very, very sensitive to electrical current. There's his nose and his lat line. Runs all the way down along that blue. Can I get a feel how long he is? Yep, keep coming. Yeah, keep coming. So now Art's his putting nose, my hand nose. on his head. That's a good size fish, eh? That is a good fish. Art, I'm gonna lift him up with you and we'll put him in together, okay? Okay, sounds good. Okay, ready? So I've got the back half and Art's got the front half. I'm gonna pick her up. Right, belly to the floor. All right, Lawrence, we're right here, bud. We're just gonna let him go there, let her go. And there he goes, Slow. swimming out with a little tag in his back. There we go. We tagged a bunch of fish that day. It was a real uh, amazing experience. And the water was rough. It was just after a storm went through. So there was huge rollers. I think the whole film crew that was with me that day got sick. Yeah, the first mate got sick. The only people that didn't throw up was Art and me. But um, the other thing, I'll tell you, Art and his first mate, a lot of wounds, a lot of scars on their legs and their arms and their hands because these are apex predators these are wild animals the last place they want to be is aboard a boat being tagged and measured and poked and prodded and they have no bones so they can spin around and bite their own tail you have to always be careful you always have to be watching what you're doing so i let those guys uh, do that work but i was able to touch it and hold it and lift it and at the power of these fish, absolutely astonishing. You know, even for a, a six foot shark that weighed maybe 125, 150 pounds, absolutely powerful animals for sure. That doesn't mean you should be worried about swimming along the beaches of Nova Scotia. They're beautiful or kayaking. So we've got some kayaking tips for you. As a blind kayaker myself, there are ways to do it without heading off into the ocean. Outdoor tips and tech. You know, there's many types of kayak. There's the whitewater kayak, little stubby, pointy, narrow ones. Then there's your sit-upon kayak, very popular on lakes for fishing and just being out there and goofing around. Then there's the sea kayak, super long boat, sometimes, you know, four meters long with a rudder at the back, very narrow. The narrower, the faster you're going to go. A spray skirt in case the waves get a little jumpy and they start coming over a bit so you don't fill up. Very smooth, very uh, stable boats. The challenge is going straight. Kayak paddles have a blade at each end, but that's no guarantee you're going to go in a straight line just because you're paddling the same amount on each side. You might have one arm a little stronger than the other, and without being able to see some sort of landmark, you're going to start paddling in circles. This is where a little bit of sight comes in handy. A little peripheral sight to follow the shoreline. You know, there's high contrast between the water and the shore. Or if you have central vision and you can focus on a target and aim for that target, you can keep in a straight line as well and get to your destination. But if you're like me now and you have no vision, you've got to rely on some other ways. And I'm going to get into those. 
There's electronics like Compass. You know, you can get all sorts of Compass apps on your smartphone. But do you really want to bring your smartphone out in the kayak, in the salt water, in the spray, in the splash of your paddle? Even if it's a calm day, there's always water traveling up and down the handle of your paddle. You're dipping it in on each side. It's getting on your hands. It's dripping off your hands. That salt water is very corrosive. Unless you've got a really good case and it floats and you can tie that phone to you, you might want to think twice about bringing it into the boat or if you do, just pack it away in a waterproof container, in a fanny pack, keep it handy, more of an emergency get rescue kind of thing. The other thing with a compass is it doesn't account for drift. You can be pointing 280 degrees, but if your boat's getting pushed sideways by the tide or the wind, you're still pointing in that proper direction. You're just five miles further down the coast than where you thought you were. GPS and a waypoint can deal with that. You can create a waypoint and go there. And even if your boat's getting pushed sideways, you're still always getting direction to your waypoint. It's not going to keep you in a perfect track to that waypoint. You're still going to have to fight the drift, but you're going to get to where you want to go. The Trekker GPS system shoved in a waterproof baggie or two. You know, you create your waypoint when you leave, you head out, and then you paddle back to your waypoint as the crow flies. Great way to get home. But you don't want to rely 100% on that. You know, technology has a funny way of letting you down. You don't necessarily need all that technology. Fishers off the east coast of Canada have been doing it for 500 years without technology. They do it by just paying attention to what's around them. Even if it's a super foggy day, they seem to manage to get back. Simple things like the wind on your face, the direction of the sun, and where that's shining on your body. Your face is like a sensor. You keep that wind on your left cheek or straight on your face or on your right cheek or right behind you. You keep that sun shining on your right side or right in your face. That can give you a lot of information on which way you came from and which way you need to go to get back. Even the waves set up in a certain pattern based on the wind direction, that gets to be pretty predictable. If you're taking the waves on your bow on the way out, you want to take them straight on your stern on the way back. Or if you're taking them on the right side on a bit of an angle, you reverse that on the way back. There's the sound of waves crashing on shore to tell you where the shoreline is. You can hear that stretching up for miles. What a great way to follow a coastline, just by listening to the breakers. Or the wind in the trees, or the birds in the trees. You can hear all that if you're close to land. If there's no wind at all, you can probably smell the land. You can smell the spruce trees, you can smell the grass. It smells totally different than the water. No one should be out there kayaking by themselves, unless you're a real expert. You wouldn't go with someone. You can listen to the splash of their paddle and follow that right behind them. You can hear them singing. Maybe attach a little bell to the back of their boat on a flag. So every time that flag whips around a little bit, that soft little bell tinkles around. Not too annoying for the person in the boat. They'll forget about it after a while, and you've got something to aim for. Just make sure you don't crash into the back of them too many times. Nothing upsets a friend more than if you keep banging into them with your boat. Or just forget about going somewhere and just go out and have fun. Ride those waves into the shore. You feel the waves, you know they're heading to land, you get on top of one, you get on the face of it, and you surf it in. Kayaking is a lot of fun. Great exercise, great for your core, great for your back, great for your arms, great for your heart, and most importantly, great for your soul. Follow me on Facebook. Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. 
and please take some time to rank us and give us some comments on your podcast provider's site so other people will learn about our new show. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMI-audio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, Sam Robinson, and Paula Deneen. They're my technicians. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. I'm going to take you through my entire journey from the start. Join Yogi Kevin Naidu as he shares his insights and experiences and explores mindfulness, physical, and mental health. There's something happening here. There's almost a realignment of me with my physical, emotional, and spiritual body. So love yourself. Be proud of yourself. Be gentle with yourself. A Yogi's Guide to Health and Wellness. New episodes every second Tuesday. Download this AMI podcast wherever you listen. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider. Podcasts.